Many people in our food community have been seriously impacted by Superstorm Sandy, and our hearts go out to them. At HRN, we've been covering these stories since the storm hit. To learn more, visit our website at www.heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. We're Groundworks, Inc. I'm Alice Marcus-Krieg. And I'm Carmen DeVito. And we design, install, and maintain gardens in and around New York City. We Dig Plants brings the culture to horticulture. And in doing so, today we're going to talk about one of my favorite obsessions, and I know Carmen's too, David Austin Roses. Yes. Um, each winter, they produce this amazing slick green catalog that comes <laughs> in the mail. And um, you get to dream again about summer, and you get to remember those amazing colors and fragrances and the optimism that roses bring. It's really a blending of old and modern um, times in particular with these roses and we could use some optimism here in new york especially we've had a rough couple of weeks and we really missed coming into the studio but last week last week and the week before it was really really impossible but the gas lines are going down yes that's good the subways are kind of up and running again for the most part and electricity is flowing again and roses are blooming again yeah actually they are in fact (laughs) Mm -hmm. um um, my rose in my front garden in Brooklyn put out a new flush in this today spring weather. So in the last three weeks, we've had tropical storm, <laughs> yes. hurricane, fall. Then we had winter. We had snow. Mm-hmm. And now we have a beautiful spring day today. <laughs> so let's talk about roses. <laughs> Can I tell you the last thing I did before I sort of batten the hatches, Alice, at my house. You stopped and smelled the roses? No, well, I stopped and picked the roses. I said, yeah. God damn it, I'm not going to let Sandy take my roses. Yeah, so exactly. I picked a whole bunch of these roses, uh-huh. and I brought them in. Uh-huh. And then I battened the hatches. Yeah, right, and sat and, and dreamed about the and about w- the roses. And waited. <laughs> so we have an amazing guest today. We have a ros- the Rosarian and the technical manager of David Austin Rose Company, Michael Marriott. Um, He's our guest today, um, calling in from England, and he's going to tell us about the history of the company and how this company got started and their propagation and breeding efforts and their collections, which are so coveted. Welcome, David. Hello, Michael. Michael, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was thinking David, David Austin. (laughs) Welcome, Michael. (laughs) 
A lot of people make the same mistake. <laughs> I'm sorry. That, that must be irritating. I'm well, sure. the real David Austin, please stand up. <laughs> <laughs> So as a brief introduction, Michael Marriott um, has an amazing job. He's got the job that I would love to have. Um, He has a degree in agricultural botany. He worked in the Pacific region growing rubber, coca, and oil palm. And he joined the David Austin Company in 1985, first as a nursery manager, then as technical manager, and um, also as rosarian. So he gives advice. He draws up rose garden plans. He writes, he lectures, and he promotes the nursery's breeding program. So in reading over the history of the company and how David Austin got started, we learned that the term English rose is kind of a made-up marketing term. Is that right, Michael? Um, yes. I, I, I hesitate to say the marketing term, but if you say that to, to David Austin, he would probably uh, wouldn't like that at all. Um, right. It's it sort of, he got his inspiration from the fact that there's, there's Scottish roses, the Scots roses, which are hybrids of Roses spinosissima, one of the wild roses we get over here in the UK. And he also got the, the French roses, the Gallica roses, uh-huh. which are um, hybrids of Rose Gallic, you know, one of the groups of the true old roses. And since roses are particularly associated with, with Great Britain and, and England, of course, then he thought, well, why not have a, a group of English roses as right, well? Right, And um, at the time when he, he sort of first thought up the term, it was before, it was when he just it just started off in the, in the UK in 1969, and it was sort of quite a good term then because he didn't have any thoughts of it becoming international. But nowadays it's it gets a bit confusing, so uh, often in in the states and Australia and places like that, they call Austin roses rather than than English roses or David Austin's English roses or something like that. Yes, right, and that that's how we know them um, and and how we refer to them. Um, so tell our listeners about old roses versus new roses, and in particular the constant spry rose, which was your kind of frontsman. Yes. Well, the, the true the true old roses they they um, go back centuries, and so the earliest ones go back to sort of twelfth, thirteenth century, something like that. Sort of lost in the mystery of time, really. Mm-hmm. And um, and they they went right through until really the end of the nineteenth century. And um, that beautiful, some of them are fantastic roses, very beautiful. But the, the true old roses, the Gallicas and Damasks and things like that, Centipho- um, the um, Albers, they only flower once. They, they, they don't have any repeat flowering. So you're just talking now about you know, going out just uh, in sort of November and picking flowers, picking roses off your, your bushes. Uh, the old roses have the one flush of flowers sort of in about June, July time, wherever you live in the, in the world. Mm-hmm. And then that's it, no more. Mm-hmm. And then they also have a very narrow color range, so you only got white, pink, and purple. You don't have true crimson, and you certainly don't have any yellows and apricots. So one flying and um, no, uh, just a, a very narrow, narrow color range. And then, of course, if you contrast that to the modern roses that everybody's used to, then they, they repeat flower, and they'll start in New York, they'll start at June time and go right through until November, even December, maybe. And uh, there's the whole color range except for true blue. Mm-hmm. And so um, David, um, when, he, when he was a young man, uh, he's 86 now, <laughs> uh, when he was a young man, he, he really didn't like the modern roses, the hybrid teas of, of his time. Right. And uh, he got to hear about the, the true old roses, because in those days they were practically extinct. People were just sort of 
chucking them out. People weren't interested in these old-fashioned roses that only flowered once. They wanted wanted the newfangled um, modern hybrid teas with their wide color range and very distinctive flower shape. So he he got hold of some of these true old roses and immediately fell in love with them. And uh, he'd always been passionate, very interested in in uh, the, the, the breeding of new varieties of plants, not new, and he, he was searching around for a, a plant to work on, and when he saw these true old roses, he, that's when the light bulb lit up in his head, and he thought, well, maybe I can work on these, trying to um, use the old roses as a basis, but um, try and make them repeat flying and try and int- introduce a wider color range as well. And so that's what he did, and... Um, he he started crossing the old roses and the new roses and, and developed his whole new group of, of what he called the English roses. Mm-hmm. And, and then Constance Pry was the very first one that he uh, that was that he introduced. That was 1961, and that's in fact still mm-hmm. only flowers once. Um, so that's sort of like a precursor. And it wasn't until 1969 that he introduced a, a group of his first repeat flowering English roses, and um, you know, things went on. From that, and uh, amazing story to tell from from those early beginnings when he really struggled to to start up the nursery and and battled against the huge great nurseries at that time in the UK, things like people like Harkness and Wheatcroft and and Friars and things like that. To, to try and sort of compete against them was was either incredibly stupid or <laughs> incredibly brave. Right, right. Well, when you love something, you know, the passion just takes hold. Well, I'm personally enormously grateful um, that he did that because there's a rose in my garden that blooms nonstop, the prince, and I think that's one of yours, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's the right, prince. yeah. Yeah, and again, talking about passion, I mean, that's, that that passion has held him through all, or held him all the way through, and so even now at eighty six, he's totally passionate about his um, what uh, what he's doing, and an absolute believer in uh, keeping going, developing the new varieties all the time, and so um, hopefully he'll keep going a very long time. So you know he's he's always got plans for the future, and he said, oh, just you wait until you see the new varieties I'll be introducing in the next. Two, three or four years, they'd, uh-huh. they'd be absolutely fantastic and be really healthy and really beautiful. And so always looking forward to the future, always excited and always passionate about them. So tell us quick for, I mean, quick, I know that's a relative term, but tell, tell our listeners how a rose comes to market. Like, you know, ha- tell us a quick overview of the process. Well, to actually produce a new variety, you have to cross two varieties. So you, you transfer the pollen from one variety and put it onto the stigma of another. And then the hips are produced, the seeds are produced inside, you, you harvest those, you sow them, um, they, they germinate uh, fairly quickly, and usually by about April, you, you, after sowing them until January, February time, you see the first flowers in April. So very quick uh, first flowering. And then it's a matter of choosing the most interesting ones over the years and the ones that are most beautiful and most reliable um, and uh, most healthy as well. So mm-hmm. we do it on a huge scale. We do something like um, 150, 160,000 crosses every year to produce in the region of 400,000 seeds. Um, those 400,000 seeds are sown one by one in a plug tray. That's what we're doing at the moment at the nursery. And um, we get about 200,000 seedlings uh, every year from that. 
And those 200,000 seedlings are, are whittled down um, down to about the four, five, six that we introduced at the Chelsea Flower Show. And that the whole process takes about eight or nine years. And so we start off with the one, one plant of each uh, seedling. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the time we decide on the variety to be introduced, then we usually have about fifty or 20,000 of them. So it takes... Um through I I've, I've never grown roses from seed. I didn't realize that it's that quick. It will flower the first year after sowing. That's right. Yeah. So it's a, if it's a repeat flowering rose, then it flowers mm. within literally two three months of, of sowing. If it's a if it's a non-repeating variety, if it's a, it's a, if it only flowers once, mm-hmm. then it'll may take two three years before it flowers. Um, wow. But that's... yes, they, they, all, they all flower incredibly quickly. I mean, this is all in the greenhouse, but still, you know, they, they still grow very very quickly. That's very interesting. So, Michael, then tell us, um, before we go to break, tell us some about some frankenflowers that you all have developed, <laughs> right? Tell us some things that didn't work um, and why. Well, <laughs> there's vast numbers. So you can imagine, out of 200,000 seedlings, we only introduced five or six. And so 199,994, whatever, get chucked away every right. single year. Right. And so there's more there freaks. just ones that right. um, maybe not very beautiful, or just boring. Um, maybe they don't uh, um, uh, just look very good outside. Maybe they get dreadful disease. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe they just, you know, just don't work t- together as a plant. And what we're always after is, is not just a uh, beautiful flower, wonderful fragrance, good repeating and, and great health. What we're looking for is all of those characters and the magical quality of, of charm uh-huh. and, uh, and beauty. You know, and that's what right. people really recognize, that they, want, that they really recognize um, charm in, in, in our uh, Austin roses. And, and unfortunately, I think a lot of plants, not just roses, a lot of plants to introduce these days onto the market are completely charmless. Yes. You know, they, they, they're, they're just novelties. They're, they're bigger or, or smaller or brighter or bigger flowers or whatever. But in terms of beauty and charm, they score very, very badly, which is a great shame. It is. It is. And, and that's what's so lovely about your catalog and, and why it's so it's such a, a peaceful pursuit in the middle of winter to, to imagine you know, what these are going to smell like and look like in your garden and and the thing with with these david austin roses is that they're huge they're like big cabbages you know with multiple um petals petals and they're just they're just exquisite and it's nice to hear a company include charm yeah as one of the uh, attributes attributes right. that they're looking for in a flower because you're right a lot of it is just about novelty and market and commerce weird, i mean you know we've seen it all we we deal with plants every day and we have to select um from the multitude of options each new season and you know sometimes we find ourselves going back to so many of the tried and true because the old one the new ones are just you know, you kind of hit the nail on the head, charmless. Like, what were they thinking, right. you know? It's grotesque almost, it becomes. Yeah. yeah. Right. And you start searching yeah. out for simpler forms, you know, things that are... You Sometimes Alice and I find ourselves going back to the species because all the hybrids have become so weirdly deformed or out of character mm-hmm. with the original plant, you mm-hmm. know? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's so, you know, my, the thing that comes to mind immediately is, is some of these echinaceas that are introduced <laughs> these days. They, they sort of look like zinnias, you know, but the, yeah, original, right. echina- the, the original echinacea is just such a beautiful plant. Right. You know, why, why mess around? Why try and make it look like a zinnia or something like that? You know? that's, that's a perfect analogy. Exactly. <laughs> well, we have to yeah. take a break. Hang on to the line. We'll be right back in a few minutes. You're listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to Josephine by the Hollows on the Heritage Radio Network. Org. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Washed rind cheeses are a fairly recent addition to the repertoires of artisanal cheesemakers in the United States. These cheeses tend to be stinkier than other types and are often high on the list of connoisseurs. Now, Whole Foods Market has come up with one of their own. The raw cow's milk cheese made by Sprout Creek Farm in Poughkeepsie, New York, is washed with six-point ale from Red Hook, Brooklyn. The beige sticky rind deepens in color as it ages. The satiny ivory cheese within is mellow with a sweetly tangy bite and a grassy aroma. The current version features six-point diesel, which is in limited supply, so stop by and pick up some before it's gone. And point-of-origin cheese is sold exclusively at Whole Foods Market in New York, northern New Jersey, and Connecticut. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm not one for consolation, never second best. I'll practice till I get you right, my dear. So know that I will love you and... Hi, welcome back to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. Well, that was an appropriate song, Josephine. Josephine. We we are talking about roses with uh, with Michael Merritt of David Austin Roses, and we can't talk about roses without Empress Josephine, can we, Michael? <laughs> Michael, no, that's right. She was a, she is um, she is the original collector of um, of roses, and uh, yes. Uh, you know, yes, the um, there's a, a pact saying that uh, boats could go from England to France to, so they could especially transport uh, roses across for her garden. Right. Uh, Malmaison, just outside Paris. So, yes, she's a, she's a, a great character in the, in the rose world. So, Michael, how did you um, tell us a little bit more in depth about your story? How did you come to work with the company, and, and how did you choose roses? Um, from rubber to roses. Yeah, and part, <laughs> were you just sick of the mosquitoes and the swamp uh, <laughs> the tropics? <laughs> The, the, the mosquitoes were really, really bad. I mean, the, the cocoa plantations especially, because I don't know if you can imagine what a cocoa pod looks like. It's sort of like two cups. Yes. And they, they split them open, take the beans out, and they just throw the cups on the ground. And so then it rains like mad all the time. And so they fill with water and, and perfect little breeding grounds for mosquitoes. And sometimes <laughs> you, you go out into the, um, into the plantations and literally as soon as you got out of the car, you'd be mobbed by 10,000 mosquitoes and... It was just so bad, so you just <laughs> get back in the car and go back yeah. to the office. It it's was like worst job awful. ever, right? But it, <laughs> I, I mean, I absolutely loved it. It was a great opportunity to, to see the world. Uh, went to to Borneo, Solomon Islands, and Papua New Guinea, and you know, lived in those places for a year or two years each time. So it was a wonderful opportunity to 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 stay in that in that part of the world. But when I came back to the UK, I I didn't have a job. Uh, I had a, a young daughter. 
and um, so searching around for a job to do and um, through a contact to my wife got a job at a nursery just outside London that grew bedding plants and roses and um, for some reason they, they told me to look after the roses which I did for about 10 or 11 months and uh, then the job advert came up for David Austin Roses for nursery manager so I mm-hmm. applied and on the basis of having worked at this uh, Rose Nursery down in the South England, uh, he gave me the job. And I think partly because it, he, I, I think I have a sort of similar background to him. I, have a, I come from a farming background and um, always been absolutely passionate about plants and gardens ever since I was, well, you know, very, very young. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so David uh, could see that, um, you know, that might be suitable material to help him on his nursery. But when I joined the nursery, that was uh, 1985. Um, it was still a tiny, tiny little nursery. Um, uh, we employed, I think, about 15 people, but nowadays we employ more like 160, 150, 160 yeah. people. Yeah, and you have... And, uh, and it was just, I, I joined exactly the right time because just a, a couple of years beforehand, the, the most famous of all the Austin varieties had just been introduced, uh, Graham Thomas. Right. And, of course, it was Graham Thomas, the rose that um, made the Austin roses famous, not only around the U.K. and Europe, but around the States, um, Mm -hmm. Australia, New Zealand, and and Japan as well. So uh, I joined joined exactly the right time, and a little bit more money was coming in, and and more fame as well. And and nowadays, of course, we're probably the best-known rose nursery in the world. Right, exactly. And you also now have, you're in um, Tyler, Texas, is that right? We've got an office there, yeah, uh-huh. yeah the, the, um, and the roses are shipped uh, nationwide from there. Uh, I come across two, three times a year. I've, got, I've set up a number of trial gardens around the States um, uh, to see how the different varieties grow in all the different climates, because that's the, the, the great problem in the States, you know, the, the difference in climate between sort of San Diego and, and Alabama and, um, right. and New York and over in Portland and, and in Des Moines or something like that is huge. And some varieties can cope very well with one climate and absolutely dreadful another climate. So what I do, I come across, um, I'd say, two or three times a year, inspecting my trial gardens and taking notes and uh, uh, finding out uh, which are the best where, and so I can pass that on to, to gardeners all around the States. So what's the best seller here in the States? Um, probably at the moment it's a, it's a fantastic red variety called Munstead Wood. Uh-huh. Um, most beautiful dark purpley red, uh, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful flower shape and lovely fragrance to go with it as well. Truly lovely rose. Mm-hmm. How does it compare to the Prince? <laughs> Do I need to give up my uh, Prince, Michael? <laughs> it's, it's more free flowering. More? Um, Prince is lovely, but it's, it's a bit, um, it's a bit sparse. Like it doesn't, it's not terribly generous of its flowers. Um, but it's got a lovely fragrance too, and then it'd be healthier as well. So yeah, of the two, I'd, I'd prefer Munstead Wood. Hmm, I'm going to have to try that. So what's the yeah. what's the biggest market for the David Austin roses? Like, who's your what country is the biggest purchaser? Um, obviously, in the UK, where where the biggest here, but um, yes, the states would be the um, the second biggest okay. where we sell yeah. a, a lot of roses in the states. Yeah, there's a an awful lot of you over there. <laughs> <laughs> and I saw also that that you all are now doing floral bouquets. You're you're right. You're that's right. We well we we um, I think it's about sixteen seventeen years ago. We we. Um, 
had this idea that uh, it would be good to try and breed some varieties of roses that look like the Austin roses, but um, that would be suitable for cutting, because people always love bringing our roses into the house and, right. and uh, making arrangements, and they do look absolutely superb. But of course, they only have a fairly short vase life. Mm-hmm. And um, whereas the, the, the sort of traditional cut rose that you get for, you know, you buy for Valentine's Day and things like that, are really incredibly characterless. They sort of bred really for vase life. So they, they'll last two weeks or more in the vase, but they just sort of... But they're boring. Really. They've got well, they're no foul. They've got no character, no <laughs> they're charm. They're foul. I'm sorry. I'm just going to say it. My, they're foul they roses. Foul. In fact, yeah. I've forbidden my husband to buy me any of those. Right. They're awful. They're just... Yeah. They're, they're, they're chemical-laden, you know, and they, and they have no grace. They really do. No, no. no. So we, we started crossing the uh, Austin roses of the traditional cut varieties, thinking it would be quite easy to introduce them. But about two million pounds later and, and about 13 years, we uh, finally introduced our first varieties. And, and they're, they're, they're becoming more and more popular now. Uh-huh. And um, uh, they're, they're very beautiful, lovely roses. So they're very much like the Austin roses, very double. Got a certain, not, not hugely fragrant, but a certain amount of fragrance. And, um, and vase life of about sort of a week or 10 days or something like that. So, not up to scratch of, of the other ones in terms of vase life, but you know, do you really want a flower to last two no, weeks in your no, vase? You no, know? no. <laughs> and also, I, I think that there's some, you know, they're ephemeral, and it's a very different kind of business. And what's nice about the cuts is that you can now introduce the roses, of course, to people who don't have gardens, right? Mm-hmm. You know, which is very, very nice. New Yorkers, New Yorkers. <laughs> 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 well, we use roses a lot in the gardens that we make in New York. Uh-huh. We use a lot of rugosas, rugosas, and our go-to variety is the fairy. That rose, Michael, is sort of, you know, when it's happy, it just it can take anything that New York can dish out. Right. Yeah, it's one of those, and I think it's an old variety too, right? It's from the thirties, nineteen thirties, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, it's yes. I mean, the, the one thing, of course, it does lack is is fragrance. Yes, right. and yeah. um, and I always think that uh, you know a rose that is not fragrant is sort of somehow misses the point, really. Yeah, because it's the first thing you do when you 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 you're, you're confronted with a rose is you stick your nose into it. Right, and uh, if there's no fragrance there, it's sort of mm, a bit boring, really. But uh, the, the rose, of course, is the most amazing plant from the point of view of, of fragrance. There's no other plant that has a, such a wide range of completely fragrance types as the rose. Right. So, you know, you, you smell a, a, a wallflower or a, a lilac or something like that. It has a very distinctive fragrance. But a rose can have uh, five very different basic sorts of fragrances. The, the old rose fragrance, tea fragrance, musk myrrh and a whole range of different fruity fragrances as well so absolutely fascinating and something that i i'm really passionate about and uh, you know i'm whenever i i get a rose i'm always putting my nose into it to see what what's there right and, uh, try to identify it and it's uh, just really such a enjoyable thing to do and of course it has a very basic effect on our brains it's not just oh yes that's a nice smell the rose smell actually has a positive effect on our brains makes us feel better. It calms us down, but it also makes us feel better as well. So mm-hmm. the more you can smell the roses, the better. <laughs> well, I've, another question for you then is, are you all still searching for old roses? Uh, well, the, uh, well, there's, there's more and more old roses. Well, not, not, not more and more. Uh, uh, gradually, old roses are coming to light, and I'm always on the lookout for... Uh, 
a true old rose that might be might have passed me by and uh, is right. worthy of introduction. They're, they're often very difficult to find really good ones. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes the disease resistance is very not, not very good, or that, that they don't cope with um, inclement weather right. uh, very well. Uh, and at the end of the day, unfortunately, just because a rose only if an old rose only flowers once, then there's a limited market, uh, which is a shame because, I, you know, practically everything else in your garden flowers once, so why reject a rose, beautiful, beautiful rose uh, that only flowers once? It's, it's, it's silly. Mm-hmm. I, I read somewhere that a good place to hunt for roses is cemeteries. Cemeteries, yeah. yeah. That's old right, and, and down in the south, they, they all have these um, rose rustlers, uh-huh. go around and try to identify them and, and propagate them if it's worthwhile. And they found some fantastic varieties that they haven't been able to put names to. And so yeah. they've just given local names. Yeah, it's, uh, it's fascinating. Uh, unfortunately, very little of that in the UK, I think, because it's sort of, there's no tradition of planting roses in churchyard, or very little, really. But uh, when you go over to sort of places like um, Australia and New Zealand also, and you find some very interesting varieties mm-hmm. out there. But it's also partly the climate, so a uh, bit more of a challenging climate in, in the UK for varieties that are not so reliable, whereas if you've got a drier climate uh, down south, then disease tends to be less of an issue and they, they, they survive better. And also Northern California is fantastic for roses, right? The San Francisco area is That's probably right. prime yeah. prime area for for rose growing and breeding. That's right. Yes, yes. It's um, yes. There's a there's a lots of the uh, states where it's a much better climate than ours. But then you have some very challenging areas. I mean, if you go down to the southeast, or say Alabama, Georgia, Florida, then uh, and then you've got the jolly Japanese beetle <laughs> over right. there as well, which is. Uh, I'm so glad we don't have that over here. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the nicest description I've ever heard. <laughs> and then the leafcutter bee, which right. is very popular in my garden, likes to visit my roses annually. Well, um, I, I actually like the leafcutter bee. He makes he makes such a perfect incision into the leaf. <laughs> yeah. I just marvel at this sort of little semicircle of leaf that's missing. Those and it doesn't, fantastic. you know, it doesn't really seem to be affecting it. So it just sort of, you know, yeah. Just does its thing and doesn't do and doesn't do so much damage that it's no, you know. No. Well, Michael, let's let's talk quickly. You mentioned the Chelsea Flower Show, um, which is kind of where you introduce the the new varieties. Tell us about the Chelsea Flower Show, and then quickly tell us about your relationship with the Queen. Isn't that a bit personal, Alice? <laughs> 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 Not your particular. I'm saying with the David Austin Company. <laughs> All right, this is a G-rated show, so let's keep it clean, Michael. Carry um, on. Just, just <laughs> keep calm. Chelsea, Chelsea is the um, is the, the uh, arguably well. I think everybody agrees. Really, it's the best flower show in the world. And uh, it's where all the Wells uh, press go, gardening press go, and all the uh, the best gardeners around the world go. And um, so it's where we introduce our new varieties uh, each year. So we have a garden that is about um, I don't know, 30, 40 feet square, and we create a garden there uh, and incorporate our new varieties. And then according to what names we've decided, we often have somebody to, to launch them for us. And uh, so that attracts quite a lot of press. And then that's on on the Monday. Um, and then everybody's c- kicked out at three o'clock on the Monday afternoon. And then that's when the royal visitors are allowed to come in. So the Queen and, and various uh, I mean, people like Prince Charles and um, Princess Alexandra of Kent and 
Princess Anne and um, Prince Edward and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so they come round, and, and sometimes they'll come and visit us and sometimes not. So, um, yes, the Queen uh, comes round every sort of three or four years and, and has a chat with us. And uh, then this last year, this year she didn't, but then we had Princess Anne, Prince Edward and Princess Alexandra of Kent and, and one of the, another royal who I couldn't name, actually. Uh, and, um, yes, each came onto our stand and uh, had to have a chat with them as well, all about roses. And they're, 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 they're amazing people. I mean, it's, uh, it's easy to ridicule them a little bit, but... Um, but in fact, uh, you've got to uh, hold up your arms. At them. They're, 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 they do a fantastic job to go around and, and talk to everybody in turn and, and talk sense to them. And right. it's just, it, it, I, I'm uh, in greater admiration of the job they do around the world. Well, I'm, you know, and horticulturally, you know, you can't have Kew Gardens without them. So it's you originally, know, yeah, yeah, without the support. So they kind of started it all. That's right. They, they started that was it three or four hundred years ago or something like that. Yeah, and, and there's been a great tradition in the royal family for supporting um, plants and gardens. Right. And, uh, great yeah. for them. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Prince Charles is quite the gardener and gentleman farmer, isn't he? Oh, Highgrove. I've never actually been to Highgrove, but apparently it's a most fantastic place and, and great supporter of organic gardening. Yes. Yeah. And um, so yeah, uh, he, I, I've met him three or four times now. And, uh, yes, quite, quite an amazing chap, actually. Quite amazing. Well, I'm sorry we have to end our show today. The 30 minutes is already up. I, we actually extended so, because we, I, I feel like we could talk to you forever about <laughs> roses. So the last question we have for you, Michael, is what is your favorite David Austin rose? <laughs> uh, Oh, such an awful question! <laughs> <laughs> if you want to ponder it, we you can you can write it, think about it, and we can post it on our website. Yeah, if you want to think about it. Okay, well, I mean, I don't, I don't have a favorite at all, really, because yeah. I, I have lots of favorites. Right. Of so course. Um, you know, you, there's things like Lady Emma Hamilton that has the most fantastic fragrance, or Gertrude Jekyll also has the most superb fragrance. Right. Uh, Munstead Wood. Um, then uh, I know Septidile, that's a superb rose that keeps on flowering again, fantastic fragrance. So, you know, it's all the ones that, that have really superb fragrances, and uh, even though they might not be the most reliable of all roses, they'll, you know, they're, they're still so great favorites. They might suffer a bit from black, black spot or something like that. But, you know, it, it, you don't want to worry too much about these um, diseases because you know, we, we all suffer from ailments now and again and we don't get chucked out just because we get a bit of a cold or a cough or something like that. So, well, thank God you know, for that. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. It, it's worth persevering with varieties, looking after them a little bit better and, uh, and you know, if they've got great attributes like beautiful flowers and wonderful fragrance, then, you know, look after them and keep them in your garden. Well, okay, one more question. <laughs> what, what would you like to see for the future in the rose industry? And you're not going to say a blue rose because we know you're not, gonna, you're not working on that. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all, no. Thank um, God. No, it's, it's just that, that combination of, of um, beautiful flower, fantastic fragrance, um, beautiful form, and um, uh, perfect health as well. I mean, that would be the ideal. And, uh, and do remember that, you know, a, a rose is not just um, something very double. Um, I mean, the Austin rose, you, you were saying earlier on about 
very big double flowers, but in fact, the great thing about the Austin roses is they're hugely variable. There's some which are just single with five petals, yeah. some are semi-double, some are small flowers, some are large flowers, and they're all sorts of different shapes and sizes, and it makes it so much more interesting. So glory in that, don't just uh, limit yourself to the sort of the classic uh, um, very double flowers. So yes, I, I'm, I'm, I want variety in my roses. I don't want them to all... That's what happened to the hybrid tea. They all ended up becoming very boring because they all look right. rather similar. The same shape, um, right. Yeah, right. that's right. So, I know. If um, I s- every time I see that. variety you find the rose world. Yeah. Take advantage of those attributes. I, I have a feeling there's going to be a rose named Pippa sometime soon. What do you think, Michael? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a nice name, yeah. <laughs> she is hot. <laughs> yes. I'm thinking something crimson, multi-petaled, um, with a good fragrance. I think it loses its petals and then gets them back, back. <laughs> <laughs> within the same season. <laughs> That's right. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being on our show. You've been listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. Um, please check out David Austin's catalog for some excellent rose porn. It gets us through the winter for sure. Thank you, Jack Kinsley, for producing and to Joe G for engineering. Have fun in the garden. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.